They don't know how to walk this tightrope, how much to tell and how much not to tell. A friend of mine who's who's lost two family members in this war, starting a new job and said, when do I tell my employer? How do I tell my employer? I'm not myself. I'm crying randomly. I think many of us have had that experience of random weeping. You know, sometimes you can cry in front of someone and they understand and there are no words. But what happens when you have to use your words? And I don't know. I know it's hard to live. I think it's a very hard time to, to figure out the basics of living. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I've been fortunate to host Dr. Erica Brown on The Orthodox Conundrum twice in the past six months, once in episode 170 about leadership and again in episode 176 about the theology of Kohelet. I don't ever remember having a guest back for a third interview in such a short span of time, but Erica's voice is one which, I believe, needs to be heard by as many people as possible. Like many, I've been greatly enriched by her wisdom, and today's conversation is no exception. Erica composed a type of memoir or spiritual diary in the two months between Simchat Torah and Hanukkah, where she openly discussed her thoughts and feelings about the atrocities of October 7th and the subsequent war against Hamas, which, ever since it began, has been occupying our hearts and minds daily. This extremely personal work is entitled Staying Human, and I was hugely impressed in that it so effectively captured the emotions and spiritual insights of one individual in such a way that readers can relate to it as well. Perhaps more than anything else that I've read, she puts much of what I've been experiencing over the past few months into words, and in so doing, has allowed us to confront these feelings in new and productive ways. In this conversation, we talked about why she wrote the book, its interesting structure, and how she would characterize it. We also talked about many of the issues that she raises, including the conflict between what Rev. Cook calls the Song of the Nation and the Song of Humanity, the problem of theodicy in Jewish thought, handling the rage we may feel so that it does not become unhealthy, how to relate to the question of innocent Palestinian civilians, why it's important to identify and name evil, why people so often fall back into moral relativism, ways to rethink social justice given that so many Jewish advocates of social justice feel betrayed by their allies, issues with diversity, equity, and inclusion, the future of leadership when young people have been so much more impressive than our existing political and religious leadership, the dynamic between despair and gratitude, and more. We'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I released two new articles. The first is entitled, The Enemies of Religion, which addresses the fact that religious people are sometimes under attack, but that the real dangers are the enemies from within, who may believe that they are helping religion, but are in fact undermining its foundations. The second is entitled, Moses and the Enemies of Religion, and shows how these internal enemies, including self-satisfied religion, shallow religion, and religion allied with power, are among the elements that Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to avoid when he was reluctant to become the leader of Israel in this past week's Torah reading. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. 
And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She previously served as the director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership at the George Washington University and as the scholar-in-residence for the Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Boston and the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. Erica was a Jerusalem Fellow, an Avi Chai Fellow, the recipient of the 2009 Covenant Award, and is a faculty member of the Wexner Foundation. She has written or co-authored many books on the Hebrew Bible, spirituality, and leadership, and has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tablet, First Things, and the Jewish Review of Books, wrote a monthly column for the New York Jewish Week, and is consulting editor for the journal Tradition. Her latest book is Kohelet and the Search for Meaning. She currently serves as community scholar for Congregation Eitz Chaim in Livingston, New Jersey. She tweeted on one page of Talmud study a day at Dr. Erica Brown. She is the proud mother of four children, four in-law children, and five grandchildren. Dr. Erica Brown, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. You're very welcome, Scott. I, I have to say, connecting to people who think deeply and intelligently is just more important to me than ever. So thank you so much for having me. That's very kind of you to say. I want to talk about a book you wrote entitled Staying Human. It's a book that you wrote in the days between Simchat Torah and Hanukkah. I know that since I read it, as a PDF, it has been expanded, but I'll talk about what I read. In a lot of ways, it's different than almost anything else I've ever read. And frankly, when I began reading it, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I was a little bit confused or puzzled at the beginning. It seemed like a cri de coeur that was comprehensive, if that makes any sense, about what's going on. But by the time I finished reading the book, it was one of the most deeply religious books and emotional books that I've ever read. And it touched me in a very deep way. And I was very, very impressed with it, if I can say that. I, I don't want to call it a spiritual classic only because I know that Mark Van Doren says a classic is a book that remains in print, so I guess time will tell, but it definitely is on the list of those that I think might make it because there's so much here that is worth discussing. I'd like to open up with a particular quote, which I think will set the framework for some of what we want to talk about. You wrote the following on, what's for me, page 81. Life is not comfortable. We must be blunt and say it straight. It is not comfortable. Our job is not to make others comfortable. Our beautiful, precious young people must grow into consciousness and look ahead at the global responsibility that will one day lie on their slim shoulders. They cannot hide. We cannot hide. We must engage in the difficult conversations, in the uncomfortable conversations about anti-Semitism in Israel, because our people are suffering. We can try to shake off the mantle of leadership, but it will find us at this hour. If you are a Jew, you inherited the fight. We must hold our peers and colleagues and bosses accountable. They are welcome to say or do what they like. That free will was the gift of Adam and Eve's disobedience. But there are consequences to every decision. You can disobey, but you cannot disobey and stay in the garden. There's no particular reason why I chose this quote, but I felt it was representative of both the style of the book and of some of the issues that you're confronting, whether it's what's going on in Israel right now, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's the dearth of leadership that sometimes we experience, or perhaps the leadership outside the Jewish community, which has been wanting. With that as sort of a background, let me ask you more generally, Erica, about the impetus for writing the book and what you were trying to accomplish in doing so. Yeah, I, I, first of all, thank you so much um, that that assessment is just so meaningful to me. Um, 
I've been very weepy since October 7th. And that was part of part of the part of the book, which I'll talk about. And so uh, if it was in any way connecting to your experience or helping to describe some of your experience, that's that's very gratifying. So I went to Israel on uh, October 22nd, you know, two weeks into the war. Um, I really got there by accident, Scott. Um, a friend of mine who came back to YU to deliver overdue library books came into my office, popped into my office. I said, wow, COVID's been gone for a long time. Those are really overdue books. Uh, <laughs> and he said, in conversation, he said, I'm going to Israel in a few days. And with a group from UJA Federation of New York, it's a group of rabbis and educators. And I said, well, how do I get on that group? And he said, give me a few minutes. And within a few minutes, I got an invitation and I said, yes. And it's not that there wasn't anything else to do. It's just that in my mind, the primary thing to do was to be in Israel, to just be in the presence of those who were suffering. Um, and to some degree to bear witness as someone who is a dual passport holder uh, to, to be there with friends and family and, and in solidarity, but simply just to be there. And I want to say how important uh, a few weeks later, I went back again and uh, on Saturday night, I'll be taking 36 YU students because I think that it's just where we need to be. And I think for me, it was comforting to be there. It, it felt, although there was so much atrocity and the news is so horrible and, you know, watching an Iron Dome rocket is is distressing. There was a sense, unlike, I think, the experience for many diaspora Jews now, which is it's threatening. Anti-Semitism feels threatening and it makes us feel like we don't belong. But in Israel, we still belong. And, um, you know, of course, I took a notebook and I documented what I was seeing. And then there was another layer that I needed to reach, and that was what did all this make me feel? And I think that's that that's what sort of made this distinctive is trying to do it's a it's a book in fragments. Um, is, there's a lot of books like that. George Saunders wrote um, Lincoln and the Bardo, and um, uh, Jennifer Ophel wrote the Book of Speculations, or something like Kaddish, the Leon Wieseltier's book. Um, and that and that deeply appeals to me as a style. It just hasn't been a style that I've published in, although it's been a style that I've written in, because what I was experiencing was snatches of things. And then it wasn't only to describe it. It was also to describe the emotional reaction to it. And the nicest compliment I've gotten from readers and several readers has been, I I'm experiencing all of these things and I don't have a language for it. And then when I read this, it helped me have a language because for most of us who did not suffer during the Holocaust, we read these accounts and we think this was someone else. And that was important to me to communicate in the book also, which is what what happens to your language when all of a sudden you realize never again is now. I definitely think that in terms of relating to it personally, as you mentioned, I felt that same way, even though the book is a deeply personal book. It's very much your experience and your emotions. I think of Henri Nguyen, the great Catholic theologian, I've quoted him before, who says that which is most personal is most universal. And that definitely applies to the way that I related to the book. Yeah. Erica, Actually, can, I can, I, can I just say, because Nguyen is one of my favorite theologians, and he tells this amazing story that I think about. In fact, I've looked it up since October 7th. He was fascinated by a group of trapeze artists that he took his father to see once in Germany. And 
he was really interested in the moment of trust that and the work that the catcher does. He interviewed the, the trapeze and he went to see them a lot of times. And I suppose because the trapeze is the great metaphor of trust. And the, the, the one who was letting go said, I'm doing nothing. The catcher does everything. And that was sort of like a metaphor for God's role is that you think that you are taking the risk by jumping, but the real, the real uh, activity is in the holding on. And that's where the trust comes. The trust that someone, when you're so vulnerable and you can fall and lose everything that someone else is going to catch you. And I say that because I've had many, many conversations just today with people who are really struggling with their own emunan bitachon, their faith and trust in this time. Um, and that's not surprising. I think if you don't ask that question, what kind of religious person are you? You know, we we see the world, we experience the world. It's God's world. And it's right now, in many ways, a harsh world, in addition to being a beautiful world. Well, I want to get to Emunah Bitachon in just a moment. That metaphor of the trapeze, I have not heard that before. That's beautiful. Before we get to that, I want to ask again about the book per se, in what section of the library would you recommend that this book be placed? That's the question which I was kind of wondering. I would say probably, it's probably a memoir. That's my guess. Um, because I don't have another category for it. Um, I think I don't generally, I write um, I write essays in the first person, but I, I, I don't write books for the most part in the first person. Uh, and this is a first person sort of monologue almost, you know. One more question about the details. Why did you divide it up according to the eight days of Hanukkah? For those who haven't read it yet, there are many chapters in the book, many short chapters of a couple pages, but the eight basic sections of the book are based on the days of Hanukkah. Right. What was the reason for doing it that way? Yeah. So I guess um, I had a conversation with Corin about it. At some point I thought, would this be helpful to someone else or am I just writing this? I mean, it it was the length of a book, you know, as I, as I kept working on it every day, in, in many ways, it was therapeutic writing for me. It was trying to crystallize what I was experiencing. You know, for me, writing is thinking. Joyce Carol Oates talks about the fact that she doesn't know what she's going to think until she actually writes it down. And I think that's that I, I very much have that experience of writing myself into an evaluation of a circumstance. And so I was writing it and I was, I was like, wow, this is reaching 200 pages. This feels like, I mean, it's it's more accessible because there's a lot of white space. There's because there's 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 snatches of of text, um, but yeah, it was it was a book length. And then I I just on a whim, I just sent it to my friends at Coren, who've been really such remarkable partners in the work that I do, and I just said. I don't know. It's near Hanukkah. It's a week out of Hanukkah. This is a crazy thing, but do you think this would be helpful to anyone? And I, and I sent it off and went to bed. And then in the morning, um, I heard from Matthew Miller, who's really a wonderful friend. And he said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And then I thought, well, if it's a week out of Hanukkah and maybe, maybe in my imagination, Scott, I thought this war is going to be over. Like Hanukkah is, that is like our military might. We've got eight days Maybe. And so I said, Simchat Torah to Hanukkah, that would be the framework or the arc. And they and they divided it up. Now, because it was printed so quickly, it has, you know, it has uncharacteristic typos and 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 some problems. You know, as thorough as we were, it, we were under a time constraint. And so since then, Corin is going to actually publish it in uh, hard copy. 
staying human. And I, and I want to get back to the title for a second, uh, but um, Staying Human is going to come out in print form. And I've taken out the Hanukkah structure because sadly the war did not end with the last candle and also put in an additional 10 pages to reflect some of the war's progression. Because, you know, the fact is every day we could add to this, unfortunately. And I think even when it's quote unquote over, one of the questions I deal with in this last segment um, that hasn't yet been published is when do wars, when are wars declared over? I mean, it's such an artificial random thing to declare something over when the aftermath of it is everywhere. It's in the rubble, it's in the faces, it's in the stories. And we're still telling stories and going to movies and reading fiction about the Holocaust. And that's, you know, so many decades away. What is going to be the aftermath of this? And I don't think we're even at a point where we can talk about the day after. I remember a Doonesbury comic strip back from the early 90s. I didn't read it at the time, but I read it later on. It was a big joke because they had a victory parade because the Cold War is over, as if they declared yeah. the Cold War is over. Yeah. There's a moment in time. It's absurd. Unless you have a complete and utter victory like the United States and the Allies against the Axis in World War II, where someone signed an official document declaring that they unconditionally surrender, there's no way really to declare when it's over. Maybe yeah. World and War we've II wasn't this, even over then. Yeah. And we've been in this war. I mean, we think about the Civil War and you, the persistence of racism, right? Uh, and I was I was interested in racism. In the book, I, I quote James Baldwin and um, Tanasi Coates. Uh, they, they were very influential for me in thinking about identity and thinking about identity very personally. Uh, in fact, when I first wrote this, I, I did it a la James Baldwin, um, fire next time, which he wrote to his 15 year old nephew about how to be black in America. And then, and then Coates did his, wrote his book, uh, uh, the world between us to his 15 year old son about how to be black in America. And I, I guess for me, because those books had been very influential, I was thinking, well, how, do, how should we be Jewish in America right now? Uh, and so I think that was also an impetus for the book is to say, how do I communicate this experience to other, to other people who are not Jewish, not that they're my readership necessarily, but I want you to understand the way that my heart is, is being ripped right now. I need you to, I need you to hear this. I, I need you to hear, you know, I, I, I deal with the, the Cooper union students who were, who were trapped in the library and hearing that animalistic pounding at the door and what that does to that student who I one of those students who I know how do you how do you learn normally you know how do you walk into an office where your colleagues have said virtually nothing now I'm at Yeshiva University and I feel blessed every day to be in an environment where my Judaism and my Zionism is honored and celebrated and I can be authentically who I want to be I'm also conscious of the fact that many, many of my friends are not in that position. And they they don't know how to walk this tightrope, how much to tell and how much not to tell. A friend of mine who's who's lost two family members in this war, starting a new job and said, when do I tell my employer? How do I tell my employer? I'm not myself. I'm crying randomly. I think many of us have had that experience of random weeping. You know, sometimes you can cry in front of someone and they understand and there are no words. But what happens when you have to use your words? And I don't know. I know it's hard to live. I think it's a very hard time to to figure out the basics of living. 
that's probably what you meant in the title by staying human, trying to figure out how to maintain that, especially when you describe the animalistic pounding at Cooper Union. Yeah. And I, I'm, and, and by the way, I, I, I mean, while I describe the fact that I think that the atrocities of October 7th really made the inhumanity very, very public. As a friend said, and I quote in the book, you know, I I said that day to guests for Simchat Torah, I said, well, today the world is listening. And one of them said, but tomorrow it won't. And so how do we stay human when you read about these stories every day, when you see that beautiful face of a of a chayal or a chayalet smiling as they announce the death of that of that individual? And also it's how do we stay human as Jews? And to the inhumanity of Palestinians. And I know that's not going to be a popular thing to say, but thousands, thousands of innocent civilians. Now, you could say no one is innocent. I think that might not be generous. Uh, I think that there are Palestinians, I know Palestinians who who are in pain, who are reaching out, who are trying to tell a different story, who, who need a different government. And, um, you know, their aftermath and our aftermath are are devastating. So I want to get back to that as well, which is something which you do address in the book. Before we leave the Hanukkah theme, which apparently in the printed version that's going to come out is not really there, I want to ask you about it's a particular the metaphor. The theme will be there, the text will be there, but the structure will be a little. Understood. Early on in the book, you wrote that the Talmudic emphasis was the miracle in the temple rather than the military victory. And what you wrote was, the rabbis understood that the military defeat was a miracle. Wars have their miracles. They also have their intense losses. But squeezing more than enough light out of what offers so little light represents our eternal celebration as a people. Erica, can you explain how we can squeeze more than enough light out of so little today? Where do you see that taking place? Because too often, I think for me, I feel like there's little light and that's all we have. And I can go to that dark place pretty easily, Scott. Um, I've I've been in that dark place this morning with the several conversations that have, have sort of take you into that cave, or I like to think of it more as a black hole where you feel like I, I don't have a ladder, I can't get out of this. But for me, the ladder has been my own faith, um, my own family narrative of the Shoah. You know, and I think to myself of how many days we've been, I think today is 88 I'm not mistaken. My grandparents were in World War II for five years. You know, my my husband's uh, my husband's grandparents were in the Blitz, right? And so you think to yourself, how is it that my family, my fa- my grandfather and my grandmother reunited and found my mother within a year, and then built an amazing life? And I hold on to that. That is the iceberg I am clinging to, which is. You know, we are great at rebuilding. We're, that is just a strength of our people. I think that, that if anything, when I look at all the kindnesses that have tumbled out of the atrocity, right, meeting atrocity with altruism, and you see it because you see how many duffel bags someone is taking from Newark Airport, you know, and they've sized every boot or the, or, you know, the, way in which people have reached out to Israelis and the level of intense solidarity. I've never experienced anything like that. Have you? Certainly not. I agree with you. And I appreciate your sharing that. It's very easy to go into that dark place. When you talk about the Shoah also, in some ways, when we talk about 6 million victims, 6 million victims who died, there were more than that in terms of victims, 
that number doesn't mean anything. It's simply too big. And yet when we talk about October 7th, Simchat Torah, and we talk about 1,200 people, that's a number that we can sort of wrap our heads around, which is why it's so difficult. If you then remember that the Shoah was 5,000 times in terms of the people, the Jews who were killed, it in some ways brings the Shoah, unfortunately, to life in a different kind of way, not because this is the Shoah, but perhaps now we can relate to the Shoah because we have a number and see what a tiny fraction of the Shoah that number actually is. Yeah, I think that from the numbers side, I think from the brutality side, it, it becomes more comprehensible, unfortunately, from the silence side, right? If people not not being with you or or thinking, well, if you know, if this happened to you, you must deserve it. I mean, I think I think people have been, you know, struggling with that. Uh I, I guess for me also staying human is to to move away from the numbers and and to be in each individual narrative. I think that was for me very hard when you think of the number when, when the war first broke out in America, you know, it was we were disconnected from the news. It was hog for us. It was a holiday. And you know, whispers I guess from the janitorial staff and others is like, you know, there've been 30 people, there were a hundred people have been killed and there've been 30 hostages, which seemed unbearable until it became multiples of that the next day. And that's where the numbers really can take you away from the story. And for me, it's focusing on what do I know about this particular hostage? How am I following this particular hostage? What story can I tell of that? Because once they become numbers, then we risk, losing our humanity, because every war has numbers, right? David Amelch said it, you know, it's sort of like they're always casualties of war. And, and then, and then there's a full stop and the sentence is over, move on. And I don't, I don't think any of those families really can move on. The, their narratives will be like the narrative of the Holocaust is for me, right? It will be in some way, it changes the trajectory of a family. Um, there's an Israeli researcher, Zrubavel, who talks about the importance of storytelling of oscillating narratives, how narratives help us manage trauma and help children become resilient. But there's certain types of family narratives. And there's the ascent narrative, which is, you know, life was terrible for us. We were poor, we were struggling, but then we became, you know, through hard work and college degrees or winning the lottery, we, you know, we are, we had a rise. And then there's descending family narratives, which is, you know, we used to be so prominent. We used to be so important. And then everything fell apart. But Zubavel says the important narrative to develop resilience is the oscillating narrative, which is this happened to us and this happened to us, right? This terrible conflict, tragedy slash, you know, whatever catastrophe happened, and this is how we dealt with it. And I say that because I think part of the war and part of what I was trying to do was oscillate the fragments, right? That we that there's that every time there was some act of destruction, I could find some story of hope. And we can always do that, but we have to look, looking for those is a choice. And I think that's, that's where Judaism has always chosen life and helped us choose life as a result. That's very interesting, that idea of the oscillating narrative, which I had not heard before. It reminds me a bit of the story of Purim, which opens up with things being okay, but not great. And then things get much worse and they get much better. But even as they're much better, it says that Mordechai was beloved by most of his brethren, Chazal say not all. It's definitely an oscillating narrative. And certainly your book on Kohelet, Kohelet seems to be very much about an oscillating narrative. Every person's life is an oscillating narrative. And and if we tell ourselves that, you know, just like, uh, you know, Kohelet says, if there's a time for everything, then there's a time for hate and there's a time for love. We're in this time of hate. You know, what does it mean to also understand we'll cycle out of that? 
it's not only that we cycle into it, it's we cycle out of it. And what do we each have to contribute to cycle out of that? And what relationship do we have with the Kaddish Baruch Hu in, in through those cycles, right? I think that there are people who give up on certain relationships during a cycle and they don't allow the process of, if you will, sort of repentance, the relationship repentance to sort of, you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, so-and-so didn't speak to me where they were so uncompassionate. I, like I'm writing them out of my li life now. And I, I'm very cautious to make those sort of judgments because I think there are people who simply don't know what to say. And so silence feels like the safer option than saying something that's wrong. Uh, I think for a lot of non-Jews, and I was very touched and wrote about um, non-Jews who reached out to me during the process of this. Uh, one of them said, Erica, you left a message for me. Erica, tell me what you're praying for so that I can pray for the same thing. Yeah, that was a beautiful line. That held me for a long time. And, and I said to myself, have I done that for others in the way that I need to do? you know, in the way that I need to give and show my humanity. Yeah, I have also certainly been touched by some of my relationships with non-Jews who've reached out as well, just to say, thinking of you, how's your son, how's your son-in-law, various people who are in the army, and it means a lot to me as well. Let's get back to the trapeze and faith. One thing which you write in the book is walking in a covenant requires sacrifices, sometimes the biggest sacrifices of all. And I'm going to ask you a big question now, Erica. Do you have a theological explanation of why that should be so? Because I generally think if I were going to be shallow, but make it easy on myself, what do you mean? Having a covenant means that I'm going to be protected. When I jump off the trapeze and fall, I'm going to be caught. And that's not the case all the time. Right. Why? So, why, why how do you explain that for yourself? Yeah. So look, uh, I, I have never been on a trapeze, Scott. My, I'm guessing I could be wrong that you have never been on a trapeze. That is correct. Okay. And I have no desire to be on a trapeze either. So, right. I <laughs> But I think if you delve into that metaphor, you know that the act is risky and that there are times that you will fall. And that's the nature. Certainly in the beginning, you fall. Um, and you hope that there's a safety net or better, you put a safety net in place. So Sadhya Gaon um, has an amazing introduction to his book, Emunot Videot. And he talks about the uh, different hurdles to truth. And he says, he basically says, if you can get through these hurdles and you're honest, then you can read the rest of this book and join me on this sort of intellectual adventure. But if you're the kind of person who he says, one of the things he says is, if, if you leave your faith unprotected so that it is susceptible to any you know, sting and bruise, then you're not doing what, what human beings do in terms of self-preservation. If I go out into the heat or I go out into the cold, I put on protective wear. I'm sort of sensitive to the elements around me. And I think when times like this, we have to do what we need to do to strengthen our faith because it is very, very easy to say, I'm out of here, right? If this is the kind of world but you could make that statement every single day. You just need to subscribe to a newspaper. A newspaper every day will share with you why you don't belong in this world. If that's if that's the way that you're going to approach it. And I say that because I think a lot of times people, until something hits them, they don't ask the theological questions. And then someone they love dies, a friend or a family member. And then all of a sudden, why did God let this happen to me? 
And I think to myself, where have you been for the last 60 years or the last 60 minutes for that matter? This is the world we live in. So figure out how you're going to approach this. And I must say that among the people I've spoken to, I think that's really the question. How do I cope in this moment? It's not why does God allow this? Because that that question is is, is always, it's, it's a constant. It's how do I manage in this moment? And really identifying what gives you strength and then doing more of it. For many people, including myself, it's music. It's connecting with friends. It's identifying certain tefillot, certain prayers that really resonate and speak to me at this moment. For me, it's a lot of tachanun, uh, our more existential prayer, and sort of holding on to that and allowing that, allowing that to embrace you as it's embraced me. I want to talk to you about evil and about the importance to name evil rather than slipping into moral relativism. Why do you think that we have a tendency to slip into moral relativism and to try to justify things that should not be justified. What is the human tendency to do that? And why is it such a mistake? I think we do it in order, I mean, tied into the last thing that we just talked about, Scott, I think we do that. That is our chief coping mechanism. Because if you really named evil and you really gave serious consideration to it, you would just be in a state of despair all the time. So I think I think that naming evil is particularly difficult. And you watch the way the world, there's a certain almost psychic refusal to accept what happened on October 7th. And I, I want to be specific about the rape cases, because I think, thank goodness, the Times, you know, has documented to an audience, I think, that that has been in deep state of denial about just how evil something gets and I, I tied it in the book to the the act of writing down what happens with Amalek in Perak Yudzain in the 17th chapter of Exodus. We went through all kinds of miracles and God did not say to Moses, to Moshe, write these down. But but when it came to this unexpected evil, vayavo Amalek, Amalek just fell upon us. And, and, and at a time where also we had just experienced victory, right? Chapter 15, we the song of the sea, right? Az Yashir, finally you feel the enemies behind you, freedom is ahead of you. You don't expect it. But we, as 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 uh, I say this is as a fellow Israeli, you expect it. You expect evil. And when you expect evil, and when you write it down, you say, This really happened, this really can happen again, and I need to be vigilant. My life is one of vigilance. And I think for for the most part, Americans in uh, in these past centuries have enjoyed a certain psychic comfort, thinking this happens elsewhere, it doesn't happen here. And what we've seen on universities everywhere is, no, no, this happens here. It happens, you, you can't deny it. You can't say, well, but in the elite universities where people are quote unquote really, really smart, this would never happen. Anti-Semitism would never happen. This kind of irrational hatred and I think this has been a, a huge wake-up call. My belief is we need to own the evil and name the evil. It was, this does happen. This will continue to happen. And it requires good people to stand up with conviction. So I had an incident I'm going to share with you. I didn't put it in the book, but I, I took a group of students to the UN to when uh, um, when a number of hostage families came to speak. It was early on in the war. And we were standing outside of the UN with flags and signs of the kidnapped as a way of helping them. So when they drove into the facility to see the support, but also for pedestrians and others to see. 
and we get in the cab to go back and I have um, three students behind in the, in the car with me in the Uber and the Uber driver is a friendly African-American and he says, so how are you doing? And I have made a decision that I'm going to tell people how I'm doing because I am not going to say I'm fine because I'm not fine right now. And granted, it, it's a courtesy question, but I used it as an opportunity. We were going to be in the car for half an hour. I said, I'm, I'm not fine right now. I've just come from the UN. There's families of hostages who have come to beg for the release of their children and or a sibling. And I, we're with them. And the atrocity of October 7th cannot be, we can't minimize them. I said, do you know what's happening in Israel? And he said, well, I've read a little bit about it. I mean, unless the ceasefire, this isn't going to work. So we got in a conversation about the ceasefire. And at a certain point, I looked at him and I said, we marched with you at Selma. And right now we are alone in the world. We have been here for thousands of years and now we are alone in the world and we need you. At which point he said, I had a Jew who used to come in my taxi. Um, in fact, he once gave me a $2 bill. He signed it and I, I kept it in my cab until someone took it. So I texted one of the students in the back and I said, who has, who has a $5 bill for me? And, you know, I'll Venmo you. And I wrote on the bill, God bless you, your friends at Yeshiva University. And I handed it to him when we left. And I could tell that the students must've been a little bit shocked by this. But when I got out of the car, I said, boys, that's the way it's done. In other words, I, what I mean by that is each of us has to be on the front lines of something, wherever you are in the world. And when you think, who am I not telling what I really experience to? Like, when, am I, when do I open up and say, this hurts me and I want it to hurt you a little bit so that you re remember your humanity in, in this moment and don't quickly lean back on certain uh, platitudes that you've heard. I think that's, yeah. That's quite a story. I'm definitely going to take that with me. I want to get back, as long as we're speaking about evil, I want to get back to something that you mentioned before about the plight of innocent Palestinians, which is something to which I relate and something which I hope to dedicate an entire episode, but it's not easy. And let me explain to you why I feel that way. You wrote in the book, this is not a war against Palestinians. It is a war against a terrorist group that is constricting and ignoring the lives of Palestinians. Everyone knows this, but pretends not to know. I'm having a hard time myself, Erica, I can say, dealing with the innocence of Palestinians because that is my natural inclination. Certainly Hamas, they're the bad guys and they're imprisoning this population, which is not Hamas. The problem is the more that I hear testimony from released hostages who say everyone there is Hamas. Last night I was at a shiva house, a chavrut of mine from 25 years ago. His son was killed in Gaza as a soldier. He's sitting shiva now. He was there being spoken to by, I came in the middle, so I'm not quite sure, but it was a soldier who had lost a leg, who I think might have been in the same platoon. I'm not quite sure. And he was actually older. And he was saying, everybody there is Hamas. He said, there's no such thing as innocent people there. Everybody there has uniforms in their rooms. Everybody there has ammunition in their rooms. Whatever it is he said exactly, I don't recall. Now, these are all anecdotal statements. They are not evidence. They are not data. But the more that I hear these anecdotes, it becomes increasingly difficult for me to indulge my natural feeling of there are plenty of innocent people there who also want Hamas out. And I'm not quite sure 
how I can gravitate towards the optimistic viewpoint, given the preponderance of evidence, admittedly anecdotal, that people are saying it's just not true, that this is a poisoned society that hates Jews. I'm not saying that they deserve to die. That is not what I'm saying, because there are some voices in the extreme right that are saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But it's more difficult than it was earlier in the war for me to say there are plenty of innocent people there who just want to get along with the Jews. How do you deal with this? I think we we don't want to be reductivist about this and just say everyone is like this. While it's true that during the Shoah, there was so much silence, there was so little resistance, but there still was resistance. You know, we have righteous Gentiles. Maybe we haven't done enough to honor them, maybe in some part because we don't really believe, as we believe that everyone hates us at all times. And I don't think that's true. Now, you're right. As the war as the war deepens and as the catastrophe deepens and as the losses deepen, people dig their heels in. And when I say dig their heels in, I don't want to trivialize what this is. I'm not a political analyst by any means. I'm a person who reads a lot and talks to a lot of people about things, but I, I'm not an expert in, in these matters at all. Um, I, you know, there are enormous structural problems right now in Israel that, that are not going to be resolved by this war and that have to be resolved in order for us to have a different kind of Middle East. I think from where I'm in, in I say this with humility and 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 unfortunate ignorance because I don't know all of the you know all the political details. But when we're opening up the Gulf, it, it, the process that have, that it's been taking place in the past few years, I can see where fundamentalists see that changing horizon and feel like, oh my gosh, they're giving up on the Palestinian cause, and this is a great leveraging time. We can, we can, we can really this will, this will, this will make a difference. You know, Brett Stevens wrote about the fact that Palestinian statehood looks further away than ever. Right? There's no where's the where's the buffer? Where's our security? You know, you haven't shown us that you want a two state solution. It's a one state solution, and 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 it's you. Um, but I, I I think that we do have to continue holding on to the distinction of Palestinian civilians who are affected by this war, who who are not taken in as refugees in other countries. I mean, I think Israel, you know, when you think about what Israel is, has been for the Jews, a place of refuge, my heart bleeds for someone who says, I have no home and no one is taking me in, right? Or the numbers of people who are taken in are very small. So I, I this is a complex narrative. And when you try to just uh, take one side or another, you really trivialize what needs to be a, a future for both peoples. Because we're not getting rid of Palestinians. That's not what's happening, and nor should it happen. These are people who have made their home a certain place. Now, war does things, right? When, you, when you're in a state of war and someone is victorious and they annex a, a place, that's a, that's a consequence of what it means to go to war. And there are gonna be consequences of this war for Israelis and for Palestinians. I don't know what those consequences are going to look like. I don't think anyone really knows, although there's plenty of pundits who are guessing. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about from the spiritual perspective of what does it mean to have an abiding belief as Jews do that we are a nation alone. The Arab League of Nations is not a place where people should be alone. There should be plenty of doors open. All kinds of historic reasons that they're not open 
but that also isn't something we can't we can't resolve everything. We can't resolve their internal problems and our internal problems. Right now we have to resolve those, but that doesn't mean that we lose our humanity. If we care about life, if you truly care about life, you care about all life. If you care about, when Rachel Goldberg made a, a beautiful plea in the New York Times, is there a mother on that side? Is there a Gazan mother who can take care of my child? What she is saying, she is imploring each of us to find that instinct, that parental loving, compassionate instinct to protect, despite the fact that you're on the other side. It's a very, very difficult, intractable narrative. I don't know how we're supposed to answer it because I'm someone who believes that there should be, quote unquote, that line, a two-state solution, and also believe equally that it's impossible for the foreseeable future. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm sure no one else does. And I only know that simplistic solutions mentioned by all sides are just that, simplistic for a reason. They don't work and they're usually foolish, right. to say the least. But again, if you want to if you want to travel history, as I think we need to travel it, there are conflicts that last for 100 years that do get resolved. Very often they get resolved by the intervention of others and they get resolved for because there are structural solutions. And right now, you know, this war feels to me like another, you know, all the ingredients were there beforehand. It was, it's as if there's one continuous war from 48 and there's just a relief from the war for a few years. I don't mean to also, again, to simplify, but that that sense that structurally, until the structural issues are really dealt with, we're going to deal with this kind of loss all the time and things will get quiet. And then, you know, and then they'll just, you know, it was in the first intifada, the second intifada, it just, it's, it, I compared it to lava in, in my book, you know, it heats up enough and then, and then it, it bursts through the surface and then it, and then it quiets again, but it's not, it, it's not going to go away until the structural things are taken care of. And that requires a definite form of leadership, which I'm not sure we have. And I want to mention what you mentioned before, that chapter about Amalek. I believe it's the same chapter, at least the one I'm thinking of, is entitled The Mountain Man, about Moshe Rabbeinu yeah. on the hill. You say, not a mountain, a hill, where Aaron and Hor hold up his hands. And you write about Aaron and Hor, a priest and a soldier, helping Moshe hold up his staff. The line which you say so poignantly is, leaders hold up their people during wartime. You have the priest and the soldier representing a type of religious leadership and political leadership holding up the people during wartime. And today I feel the opposite is happening to whatever degree it's possible. I feel the people are propping up our leaders, not the other way around. We have a leadership today of children. I say that not in a pejorative way, meaning the young people are leading the people who should be the leaders. And I feel that our actual leaders, and I'm referring to both political leaders and religious leaders, have often been absent or worse. And I don't want to get into politics per se, but I feel that there is a definite lack of leadership. So, Erica, who are our leaders today? And what are we going to do about this giant vacuum of leadership, which just seems to be growing? Yeah. Well, you know, we're we're on the brink of a of, a, of another presidential election, so... I think about this all the time, Scott, there and here um, and everywhere, pretty much. Um, I think we're seeing a certain kind of robust, muscular, autocratic sort of leadership um, that's become very popular. And and I think it becomes popular in times of uncertainty because we're sort of, we, we so crave an answer that we're willing to subject our own freedoms 
to the constraints that are that are put upon us by people who say, I know the answer to this. When when I was in Israel and visited the victims at Be'eri in, in Yama Melach in the Dead Sea and spoke to people from Nativ Asara, from a you know, a Yeshuv that used to be in the Sinai, was dismantled then in Gush Katif, and then and then um and then on the Otef, and then, you know, and then had this. You know, it's it's, it's like believe have sake, there's no breath from it. And you you can't help wonder where the leaders are. But I think what I've learned from this, Scott, is to trust the people and not the leaders. And was, I think what we saw was in the vacuum of governance stepped in the altruism of individuals who said, I need to lead at this moment. So, you know, someone from Ba'eri describes for hours and hours and hours trying to push away terrorists and where is the government and where is where is Sahal, where's the IDF in this moment? And I'm looking at his story and saying, but look at you, look at the leadership that you have expressed. And that's true. That's true for the immense chesed that's taking place all over the country. People who had regular jobs who now made it their job to cook for soldiers, to do someone's laundry of, of, of evacuees. I, mean, I just have seen everywhere the expression of leadership from people who are least likely, maybe least likely candidates. And my hope is that there'll be a new, fresh crop of leaders who have been born through this crisis. And I've, I've said this, I mentioned it in the book, you know, when I look at the response of my own university, of, of students, of faculty, of a college president, basically say, we're leaning into this. We are naming the evil. We are naming the moral ambivalence and the problems with moral ambivalence. And we're going to shout that from the rooftops. And we're going to take care of our people. I mean, all of these things, they have, they're the hallmark of leadership. So I'm not going to focus, Scott, on who we have now. Because that's not my job as an educator. It's always what's the next generation. Actually, I've seen, I think, a generation of people who've been relatively privileged, students who've grown up with all the entitlements of security, understand this is their moment. And they are shining. They are absolutely shining right now. Okay. My only hope is that the current crop of leaders who've been so disappointing, at least to me and to many others as well, know that it's time to move over. I guess we'll have to see that. No, they, they're not. Someone who's held on for such a long time is is not going to say it's time to make room for someone else. I think succession is, you know, from the days of, of, of Sefer Shmuel, from the days of the Book of Samuel, Moshe Halbertal and Stephen Holmes' wonderful book on the, on the beginning of politics, it really deals with that issue of what happened, you know, Shaul doesn't want to be a leader and then he doesn't want to let go of leadership. And we talked about this in our leadership uh, conversation. I don't think anyone's going to want to let go. The question is whether or not in some way they're forced to let go um, and what this transition will look like. No one can say, but I feel, I feel very good about the future. I really do. I'm not saying that uh, blindly or naively. I, I have seen, students rise. I have seen leaders rise. Um, and they're going to keep leading because they realize something magical happened on, uh, you know, from on October 8th and every day since then. Okay. Well, I appreciate that optimism. I hope you're right. I want to ask you something about perhaps how to bridge a problem that exists. I'm going to quote something that you quote 
Rav Cook in Erota Kodesh. He talks about a person who sings the song of the soul. Then there's a greater person, greater in quotes, someone who has a greater vision, I should say, who sings the song of the Jewish people. Then there's somebody who sings the song of all of humanity. And finally, someone who sings the song of all of creation. And perhaps above that, there's somebody who unites all of these songs together. And you comment about that comment of Rav Cook. So many Jews sing the song of humanity, but do not sing the song of their people. So many Jews sing the song of their people, but do not sing the song of their humanity. This resonated very strongly with me. And I think in some ways it does represent the challenge facing our future leadership. Can you suggest some ways that we can sing both songs, that Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, can sing the song of humanity without losing what makes us special, without losing our particular mission, and simultaneously to sing the song of particularism, of that of Am Yisrael, without losing that universal goal that we also have? Yeah, I think that's that's the question of how to walk and live in the world right now. I think right now, we need to sing the song of particularism. It was, I don't think that you can always sing these songs simultaneously. I think when life is extremely hard, you have to know who's in your family. And I'll give you just an, you know, sort of maybe an, it's an absurd example. Um, on Hanukkah, I did a, I'm a Peloton rider, cyclist, and one of the Peloton instructors who I did not know was Jewish, did a Hanukkah ride. And I'm like, oh yeah, 20 minutes, I'll do that Hanukkah ride. Little do I realize she is going to talk about her faith. She's going to talk about the importance of tradition. She's going to talk about anti-Semitism, right? This is, this is on a ride. On Peloton. Yeah. And she's going to end with Oseh Shalom, and she's going to be crying as she does it. And I wrote to her um, to thank her. And I say that because what I saw in that moment was a woman who was saying, you know, exercise is for everyone. Everyone should be healthy. Everyone should take out the stress on the bike. Everyone, But in this particular moment, I need to tell you who my people are because I'm looking for my people. I'm, I'm seeking out others who can come in to my life in this moment. She wasn't singing Oseh Shalom for anyone else. It was who would understand it. And I say that because this could be right now a moment when we learn to sing the song of our people in a very, very different way. Um, Part of it is through loneliness and dislocation and alienation from society that seems to reject us. And part of it, honestly, Scott, is that people are discovering the beauty of Judaism, right? What it means to wear tefillin and and, and, and tzitzit, what it means to light Shabbat candles, what it means to have mezuzah. Is this going to last? I don't know if it's going to last, but I will say one thing. And I say this um, with love and respect to my Orthodox co-religionists, don't waste this crisis. Don't waste this crisis. If this is a time where you can invite someone over for Shabbat, um, where you work or or where you learn, who is not really committed, you know, pick up the phone. This is a time when we as an Orthodox community, we have each other. We have that love song. But we haven't let enough people into that love song. And right now they are suffering because they don't know who their people are. So I I feel like let's give that hug and say, we're your people right now. This is an amazing time to be Kiruv or Chokim, to to welcome people. And, 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 And it's a mistake if we let this period go without saying how we've expanded our own borders. I think it's hard to sing the song of humanity, even though we have to sing it right now. I do think we need to do a better job of singing the song of our people right now. And the chorus and the orchestra, it all has to be bigger. 
I've been discouraged by certain celebrities. Not that I should base my life on what celebrities Please say, don't. but certain Please Jewish don't, celebrities. Scott. I'll do my best not to, but I'm part of the culture too. Those who've been silent, but I've been encouraged genuinely by celebrities who they're just actors or singers or whatever they are, but who have put their careers on the line because they realize that supporting Jews in Israel is putting their careers on the line and done things to express publicly how much they appreciate being part of Kal Yisrael, the people of Israel, people like Jerry Seinfeld or Deborah Messing who came to Israel, people like the baseball player from my hometown of Boston, Kevin Euclid, who every day tweets, I'm Yisrael Chai, or even the comedian John Lovitz, who was on Saturday Night Live 30 years ago, every day writing about how bad Hamas is, seeing people who... They're Jewish. I knew they were Jewish, but I didn't know if they had any Jewish connection. I still don't know if their Jewish connection is similar to mine, but they obviously have a relationship with their people, which I think is very beautiful, beautiful. which is being brought to the open based on what's been happening recently. Yeah, it's all the non-celebrities I worry about, Scott. Adam Grant, the professor at Wharton and and, and prolific author, uh, wrote a piece during COVID where he was trying to describe what people were feeling, and he called it languishing. He said, it's not quite depression. It's like you're just not yourself and you're languishing. And that language very much resonates with me. And I think there are people who are languishing and they don't have someone to talk to right now. And it's our job to really reach out to those people who are starting to feel the germination of a Jewish life that that they don't really understand and have language for. What does it mean to welcome them and say, we're a big community and we're your community right now. We've always been here. But maybe we haven't reached out to you and maybe don't realize that we're here for you. Such an important point. Speaking about the Song of Humanity a little bit more, Eric, if it's okay, I want to talk to you about your chapter entitled Rethinking Social Justice, where you note the revolution that is Judaism being represented by the contradiction between the ideal and the real, the acknowledgement that the world is imperfect side by side with a vision of what it actually could be, like when it says in the Torah that there will be no poor person, and then if there is a poor person, this is what you do. That vision is a universal vision. It's not limited to the Jewish people. But as we all know, many of the people who should be allies in this fight for this universal vision are betraying us. Bluntly, they're betraying us. And you say that we should rethink social justice, but I'm not sure what the solution is. So how do you suggest that we indeed rethink social justice? Well, I think we saw we saw this happening years ago where women who were Jewish were not allowed to be part of the March for Women in Washington, right? Or in their local chapters. You know, we've seen it in universities where someone will not allow a Jew into a fraternity um, and a fraternity which is based on doing certain acts of kindness and and, and justice. And that to me is not justice. Uh, I do talk about intersectionality in the book. A lot of people don't even know what that is. Um, and I think there, there are good reasons they don't know what that is. Uh, I am very wary of a world which, a binary world which separates people into the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, I think that's, for in university life, there are things which are so simplistic right now that really uh, defy honest learning and critical thinking. We saw for the past, I want to say two decades at least, this idea of tikkun olam as the chief expression of Judaism among certainly among non-halachic Jews, non-observant Jews. And now I think there's going to be a wisening about it, is to say, I I want to work on the world with you, and I need you to let me in, and I need you to understand what it means for justice when you don't let me in. And I say that because 
when you look at Nevi'im, I, I, I turn to the prophets so often these days because they were able to say things, feel things, do things, even though, and especially because people didn't want to hear them. There comes a time when we need a certain moral clarity, a moral voice of reason, and we need to understand if there are inconsistencies in our sense of justice, those have to be brought out into the clear white light of truth. If I say everybody is important, but you are not important, I need you to throw that tautology at me, and I, I need you to, to to understand what you how you've erased me. And so I th I think we're going to see. I hope that we're going to see people become a little bit more critical about the blind social justice mechanism that has been a driver in Jewish life for a long time. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, and I think there'll be people who are, who are angry, but um, you can't have justice for all and then say it's only justice for some. You can't have a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee and no Jews on it. And I was part of one, and I volunteered because there were no Jews on it. But the fact that there were no Jews on it meant to me that there are structural problems. So I'm hoping that this has uh, this will lead not only universities but far beyond that, people to really think about if if this isn't real justice, we got to disband these committees. I agree with that. I want to ask you about that exact point about injustice and raging against injustice, which is what prophets did. You quote Rabbi Heschel in his book, The Prophets. Yeah. And you talk about seeing posters ripped down and raging against that injustice. Let me ask you, how do you handle rage? Rage is not necessarily a healthy emotion. It's an emotion, though, that we're all experiencing based on different things that are going on in our lives and in the lives of the Jewish people in general. How do you suggest that we handle that rage in a constructive way rather than a, in a destructive way? Well, you know, rage is what David Hume would call a vehement emotion. And when I write, Scott, uh, when I write an op-ed, for example, I will always write it from a deep emotional place. And it might be that I'm very angry about a situation and I will write that. And then I will put it down, go away from it for a few hours or a few days, and then I will rewrite it 20 times. Um, I will show it to people so that I can use the emotion of it because the emotion is important as a channel, but then temper the sort of mechanisms which would alienate a reader. And I say that because as, as a method of saying, I, I'm actually experiencing the rage, and now can I observe my own rage? Can I methodically look at it, look at the drivers of it, look at whether or not that rage is going to be quote unquote useful, or it's just, it's just the despondency of the moment. In other words, uh, and I'll I'll expand this to any of the vehement emotions, because I think despair is is so uh, potent right now, and it's so hard to avoid. If I, it's easy to for me to list things to be despairing about right now. I mean that is that's just not hard. In fact, I quote a philosopher on despair at the end of the book. But now, if I say there's never been a more important time to have a gratitude journal, because that reality and this reality coexist. I can still say the Hamas did X, but that my grandchild gives me great comfort and consolation. I have to be able to say those things. And that's that's the point of choosing 
which narrative we're telling. What happens when we only tell narratives of despair to ourselves and to others? We, we rob ourselves of the range of emotions that is critical for living right now. If we cannot see that beautiful child, that grandchild, that act of friendship, that act of kindness, that gift, whatever it is, if we fail to see that because we are in despair, then we're also negating what God gave us as genuine pleasure and delight in being a human being. I need to laugh. I need to do things that bring comfort. Now, when I do that, I say, I should feel guilty. I shouldn't do And I, 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 I have this sort of internal battle, this internal struggle. The theology of distraction of Kohelet. Yes, the theology of distraction. But, but, but again, the, the, the theology of distraction adds another layer here. Who am I to take pleasure in anything when people are suffering? When, pe- when my people are suffering, when my people are on a battlefield. And so I think everything has to be tempered, but you can't live a life. And, and, and soldiers are here to protect the fact that we can laugh again, that we will be able to laugh again. I think if you, if you can't create that range in, in every day and you just give in to that black hole of despair, you can't climb the ladder out of it. And so we're walking a very psychologically demanding tightrope right now. But we have to choose pleasure and we have to choose happiness and we have to take it when we get it because it's rare. It's rare these days. Erica, I want to ask you one more question, in many ways a very basic and simple question. It's based on a very moving image. And frankly, to me, it was the most moving image that you wrote in the book. You wrote about going to a funeral on Har Herzl for a soldier who was killed, one of 12 soldiers killed that day. And it was raining on Har Herzl. Har Herzl, of course, is the Israeli military cemetery. And you wrote, God is crying again. I always believed that about rain on sad occasions. I understand this is a metaphor, but I'd like to understand what you meant when you wrote that, because it touched me deeply, even as I don't exactly understand it. Yeah, I, I think, I think standing there, rain was rain was the most appropriate weather, and our discomfort as mourners, even especially strangers to the soldier of Elipshitz from Odin who died, there was something about welcoming the discomfort of that, um, that spoke deeply to what the climate is and the, the emotional weather is that we tolerate. And there are times where we need that despair. And those, we can't save ourselves, nor should we save ourselves because someone else is crying. And that feeling of God crying, we have a midrash about this, um, I think it's a midrash in Echa, about God crying and and having no consolation. And of course, we're anthropomorphizing God, but we're also understanding that there are times in the world where everyone is crying and where crying actually is acceptable. Someone walks into a school or they walk into an office and they're crying, you think, are you okay? And then if they keep crying, you think, you're not okay. But not necessarily, they're not being generous of spirit when they say that. I think right now, tears are a very powerful mode of communication. And maybe they're the only genuine, truthful mode of communication. So that if I cry, and it doesn't take me much to cry, Scott, I'm, I'm surprised actually I haven't, I haven't cried on this on this call. But if I cried and then you started to cry, 
that would make total sense to me. And that, and we could have an hour of just crying together. And that would be, that would be just, I remember many years ago, a young woman whose father passed away right before Rosh Hashanah met me outside a store. And I said, I'm sure this is going to be a, a difficult Rosh Hashanah for you. And she said, oh, I'm not going to go to shul. I said, why not? She said, well, people will see me cry. And I said, if you cannot cry in shul, then we've done something wrong. There have to be places and there have to be people where we can express that emotional range. And we talked about the importance of holding on to happiness, but there's also importance in being able to cry openly and freely and expect that someone else is going to understand that and respect that and give us that space. That's why with the mourner, we allow the mourner at a shiva to determine the the, the the temperature of the room, so to speak, by speaking first. And if that person sits in silence, we sit in silence with that person. So I think there's a lot about um, about this time that has taught us how to connect emotionally with people. That's certainly the case. I uh, genuinely appreciate your sharing your heart today. I was going to originally ask you, Eric, a, a question about how we can find meaning in this time after Simchat Torah, everything that's happened over the past 12, 13 weeks, or is it going to remain sort of this feeling of emptiness forever? And I'm going to be very blunt about this. As I read your book, I said, oh, that's how we find meaning. It's not necessarily an expressing the lesson is or saying this is what I learned from this. It's more being able to express our emotions, our connection to each other, our feeling of love for all of Am Yisrael, and perhaps maybe at some point be able to sing Rav Cook's song of all of humanity as well. I think that you articulated it very beautifully in this book. The meaning isn't necessarily a line or a paragraph. It's letting those emotions pour out, whether it's through tears or whether it's through words. And I'm grateful to you for writing this book, which really has meant so much to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think I think there's something genuinely liberating about the capacity to be vulnerable. And um and I think this war has taught me that in spades. Um in fact, if anything, I think we're such meaning makers that we sort of sometimes have to pull back and say, do I have to squeeze meaning from every moment or can I just be in this moment and, um, and you know, and be kind in this moment and be loving in this moment? Um, it's going to take a whole lot of love to pick up all the fragments of this war. And I don't think we'll ever really make sense of it, uh, but I think we can connect through it. And uh, And I thank you for connecting with me today in that way. Just one final question. For people who do want to purchase it, I don't think it's been published yet in hardback, but when it is, how can they get it? Yeah. So Corin is right now in the editorial typesetting stage of it. So in the next few weeks, it will be available in soft cover through Corin. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone who's listening, uh, feedback, add your fragments to it. Uh, in many ways, maybe we should have just left a few pages at the end so that people could write and journal and journal their way to some kind of healing. The book, again, is Staying Human. Dr. Erica Brown, thank you, as always, again, for joining me. Thank you, Scott. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.